0: SECTION 27 OF VOLUME 1F OF HISTORY OF ENGLAND FROM THE INVASION OF JULIUS CAESAR TO THE REVOLUTION OF 1688. THIS IS A LIBRIVOX RECORDING. ALL LIBRIVOX RECORDINGS ARE IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. FOR MORE INFORMATION, OR TO VOLUNTEER, PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG. RECORDING BY JIM DENISON HISTORY OF ENGLAND FROM THE INVASION OF JULIUS CAESAR TO THE REVOLUTION OF 1688 BY DAVID HUME VOLUME 1F SECTION 27 CHAPTER 68 PART 1 CHAPTER 68 CHARLES II The King, observing that the whole nation concurred at first in the belief and prosecution of the Popish plot, had found it necessary for his own safety to pretend, in all public speeches and transactions, an entire belief and acquiescence in that famous absurdity, and by this artifice he had eluded the violent and irresistible torrent of the people when a little time and recollection as well as the execution of the pretended conspirators had somewhat moderated the general fury he was now enabled to form a considerable party devoted to the interest of the crown and determined to oppose the pretensions of the malcontents in every mixed government such as that of england the bulk of the nation will always incline to preserve the entire frame of the constitution but according to the various prejudices interest and dispositions of men some will ever attach themselves with more passion to the regal others to the popular part of the government though the king after his restoration had endeavored to abolish the distinction of parties and had chosen his ministers from among all denominations no sooner had he lost his popularity and exposed himself to general jealousy than he found it necessary to court the old cavalier party and to promise them full compensation for that neglect of which they had hitherto complained the present emergence made it still more necessary for him to apply for their support and there were many circumstances which determined them at this time to fly to the assistance of the crown and to the protection of the royal family a party strongly attached to monarchy will naturally be jealous of the right of succession by which alone they believe stability to be preserved in the government and a barrier fixed against the encroachments of popular assemblies the project openly embraced of excluding the duke appeared to that party a dangerous innovation and the design secretly projected of advancing monmouth made them apprehensive, lest the inconveniences of a disputed succession should be propagated to all posterity. While the jealous lovers of liberty maintained that a king, whose title depended on the parliament, would naturally be more attentive to the interest, at least to the humors of the people, the passionate admirers of monarchy considered all dependence as a degradation of kingly government— and a great step towards the establishment of a commonwealth in england but though his union with the political royalists brought great accession of force to the king he derived no less support from the confederacy which he had at this time the address to form with the church of england he represented to the ecclesiastics the great number of presbyterians and other sectaries who had entered into the popular party the encouragement and favor which they met with, the loudness of their cries with regard to popery and arbitrary power; and he made the established clergy and their adherents apprehend, that the old scheme for the abolition of prelacy as well as monarchy was revived, and that the same miseries and oppressions awaited them to which, during the civil wars and usurpations, they had so long been exposed the memory also of those dismal times united many indifferent and impartial persons to the crown and begat a dread lest the zeal for liberty should engraft itself on fanaticism and should once more kindle a civil war in the kingdom had not the king retained the prerogative of dissolving the parliament there was indeed reason to apprehend the renewal of all the pretensions and violences which had ushered in the last commotions. The one period appeared an exact counterpart to the other. But still, discerning judges could perceive, both in the spirit of the parties and in the genius of the prince, a material difference, by means of which Charles was enabled at last, though with imminent peril of liberty, to preserve the peace of the nation. The cry against popery was loud but it proceeded less from religious than from party zeal in those who propagated and even in those who adopted it. The spirit of enthusiasm had occasioned so much mischief, and had been so successfully exploded, that it was not possible by any artifice again to revive and support it. Kant had been ridiculed. Hypocrisy detected." The pretensions to a more thorough reformation, and to greater purity, had become suspicious, and instead of denominating themselves the Godly Party, the appellation effected at the beginning of the civil wars, the present patriots were content with calling themselves the Good and the Honest Party, a sure prognostic that their measures were not to be so furious, nor their pretensions so exorbitant. The king, too, though not endowed with the integrity and strict principles of his father, was happy in a more amiable manner and more popular address. Far from being distant, stately, or reserved, he had not a grain of pride or vanity in his whole composition, but was the most affable, best-bred man alive. He treated his subjects like noblemen, like gentlemen, like freemen, not like vassals or boors his professions were plausible his whole behavior engaging so that he won upon the hearts even while he lost the good opinion of his subjects and often balanced their judgment of things by their personal inclination in his public conduct likewise though he had sometimes embraced measures dangerous to the liberty and religion of his people he had never been found to persevere obstinately in them but had always returned into that path which their united opinion seemed to point out to him and upon the whole it appeared to many cruel and even iniquitous to remark too rigorously the failings of a prince who discovered so much facility in correcting his errors and so much lenity in pardoning the offences committed against himself the general affection borne the king appeared signally about this time he fell sick at windsor and had two or three fits of a fever, so violent as made his life be thought in danger. A general consternation seized all ranks of men, increased by the apprehensions entertained of his successor. In the present disposition of men's minds, the King's death, to use an expression of Sir William Temple, was regarded as the end of the world. The malcontents, it was feared, would proceed to extremities and immediately kindle a civil war in the kingdom. Either their entire success, or entire failure, or even the balance and contest of parties, seemed all of them events equally fatal. The king's chief counsellors, therefore, Essex, Halifax, and Sunderland, who stood on bad terms with Shaftesbury and the popular party, advised him to send secretly to the duke, that, in case of any sinister accident, that prince might be ready to assert his right against the opposition which he was likely to meet with. When the duke arrived, he found his brother out of danger, and it was agreed to conceal the invitation which he had received. His journey, however, was attended with important consequences. He prevailed on the king to disgrace Monmouth, whose projects were now known and avowed, to deprive him of his command in the army, and to send him beyond sea. He himself returned to Brussels, but made a short stay in that place. He obtained leave to retire to Scotland, under pretense still of quieting the apprehensions of the English nation, but in reality with a view of securing that kingdom in his interest. Though Essex and Halifax had concurred in the resolution of inviting over the duke, They soon found that they had not obtained his confidence, and that even the king, while he made use of their service, had no sincere regard for their persons. Essex, in disgust, resigned the treasury. Halifax retired to his country seat. Temple, despairing of any accommodation among such enraged parties, withdrew almost entirely to his books and his gardens. The king, who changed ministers as well as measures with great indifference, bestowed at this time his chief confidence on Hyde, Sunderland, and Godolphin. Hyde succeeded Essex in the treasury. All the king's ministers, as well as himself, were extremely averse to the meeting of the new parliament, which they expected to find as refractory as any of the preceding. The elections had gone mostly in favor of the country party. The terrors of the plot had still a mighty influence over the populace, and the apprehensions of the duke's bigoted principles and arbitrary character weighed with men of sense and reflection. The king, therefore, resolved to prorogue the parliament, that he might try whether time would allay those humors which, by every other expedient, he had in vain attempted to mollify. In this measure he did not expect the concurrence of his council. He knew that those popular leaders, whom he had admitted, would zealously oppose a resolution which disconcerted all their schemes, and that the royalists would not dare, by supporting it, to expose themselves to the vengeance of the Parliament when it should be assembled. These reasons obliged him to take this step entirely of himself, and he only declared his resolution in council it is remarkable that though the king had made profession never to embrace any measure without the advice of these counsellors he had often broken that resolution and had been necessitated in affairs of the greatest consequence to control their opinion many of them in disgust threw up about this time particularly lord russell the most popular man in the nation as well from the mildness and integrity of his character as from his zealous attachment to the religion and liberties of his country though carried into some excesses his intentions were ever esteemed upright and being heir to the greatest fortune in the kingdom as well as void of ambition men believed that nothing but the last necessity could ever engage him to embrace any desperate measures shaftesbury who was in most particulars of an opposite character was removed by the king from the office of president of the council, and the Earl of Radnor, a man who possessed whimsical talents and splenetic virtues, was substituted in his place. It was the favor and countenance of the Parliament which had chiefly encouraged the rumor of plots, but the nation had gotten so much into that vein of credulity, and every necessitous villain was so much incited by the success of Oates and Bedloe, that even during the prorogation the people were not allowed to remain in tranquillity there was one Dangerfield, a fellow who had been burned in the hand for crimes transported whipped pillared four times fined for cheats outlawed for felony convicted of coining and exposed to all the public infamy which the laws could inflict on the basest and most shameful enormities the credulity of the people and the humor of the times enabled even this man to become a person of consequence. He was the author of a new incident called the Meal-Tub Plot, from the place where some papers relating to it were found. The bottom of this affair, it is difficult and not very material to discover. It only appears that Dangerfield, under pretense of betraying the conspiracies of the Presbyterians, had been countenanced by some Catholics of condition— and had even been admitted to the duke's presence and the king's, and that under pretense of revealing new Popish plots, he had obtained access to Shaftesbury and some of the popular leaders. Which side he intended to cheat is uncertain, or whether he did not rather mean to cheat both. But he soon found that the belief of the nation was more open to a Popish than a Presbyterian plot and he resolved to strike in with prevailing humor. Though no weight could be laid on his testimony, great clamor was raised, as if the court, by way of retaliation, had intended to load the Presbyterians with the guilt of a false conspiracy. It must be confessed that the present period, by the prevalence and suspicion of such mean and ignoble arts on all sides, throws a great stain on the British annals. One of the most innocent artifices practiced by party men at this time was the additional ceremony, pomp, and expense with which a Pope burning was celebrated in London. The spectacle served to entertain and amuse and inflame the populace. The Duke of Monmouth likewise came over without leave and made a triumphant procession through many parts of the kingdom, extremely caressed and admired by the people. All these arts seemed requisite to support the general prejudices during the long interval of Parliament. Great endeavors were also used to obtain the King's consent for the meeting of that assembly. Seventeen peers presented a petition to this purpose. Many of the corporations imitated the example. Notwithstanding several marks of displeasure, and even a menacing proclamation from the King, petitions came from all parts. Earnestly insisting on a session of parliament. The danger of popery and the terrors of the plot were never forgotten in any of these addresses. Tumultuous petitioning was one of the chief artifices by which the malcontents in the last reign had attacked the crown, and though the manner of subscribing and delivering petitions was now somewhat regulated by act of parliament, the thing itself still remained and it was an admirable expedient for infesting the court, for spreading discontent, and for uniting the nation in any popular clamor. As the king found no law by which he could punish those importunate and, as he deemed them, undutiful solicitations, he was obliged to encounter them by popular applications of a contrary tendency. Wherever the church and court party prevailed, Addresses were framed containing expressions of the highest regard to his majesty, the most entire acquiescence in his wisdom, the most dutiful submission to his prerogative, and the deepest abhorrence of those who endeavored to encroach upon it by prescribing to him any time for assembling the Parliament. Thus the nation came to be distinguished into petitioners and abhorrers factions indeed were at this time extremely animated against each other the very names by which each party denominated its antagonist discover the virulence and rancor which prevailed for besides petitioner and abhorrer appellations which were soon forgotten this year is remarkable for being the epoch of the well-known epithets of whig and tory by which and sometimes without any material difference this island has been so long divided the court party reproached their antagonist with their affinity to the fanatical conventiclers in scotland who were known by the name of whigs the country party found a resemblance between the courtiers and the popish banditti in ireland to whom the appellation of tory was affixed and after this manner these foolish terms of reproach came into public and general use and even at present seem not nearer their end than when they were first invented. The king used every art to encourage his partisans and to reconcile the people to his government. He persevered in the great zeal which he affected against popery. He even allowed several priests to be put to death for no other crime than having received orders in the Romish church. It is singular that one of them, called Evans, was playing at tennis, when the warrant for his immediate execution was notified to him. He swore that he would play out his first set. Charles, with the same view of acquiring popularity, formed an alliance with Spain, and also offered an alliance to Holland. But the Dutch, terrified with the great power of France, and seeing little resource in a country so distracted as England, declined acceptance. He had sent for the Duke from Scotland, but desired him to return when the time of assembling the parliament began to approach it was of great consequence to the popular party while the meeting of parliament depended on the king's will to keep the law whose operations are perpetual entirely on their side the sheriffs of london by their office returned the juries it had been usual for the mayor to nominate one sheriff by drinking to him and the common hall had ever without dispute confirmed the mayor's choice sir robert clayton the mayor appointed one who was not acceptable to the popular party the common hall rejected him and bethel and cornish two independents and republicans and of consequence deeply engaged with the malcontents were chosen by a majority of voices In spite of all remonstrances and opposition, the citizens persisted in their choice, and the court party was obliged, for the present, to acquiesce. Juries, however, were not so partial in the city, but that reason and justice, even when the popish plot was in question, could sometimes prevail. The Earl of Castlemaine, husband to the Duchess of Cleveland, was acquitted about this time, though accused by oates and dangerfield of an intention to assassinate the king sir thomas gascoigne a very aged gentleman in the north being accused by two servants whom he had dismissed for dishonesty received a like verdict these trials were great blows to the plot which now began to stagger in the judgment of most men except those who were entirely devoted to the country party but in order still to keep alive the zeal against popery the earl of shaftesbury appeared in westminster hall attended by the earl of huntington the lords russell cavendish gray brandon sir henry Caverley, sir gilbert gerard sir william cooper and other persons of distinction and presented to the grand jury of middlesex reasons for indicting the duke of york as a popish recusant while the jury were deliberating on this extraordinary presentment the chief justice sent for them and suddenly even somewhat irregularly dismissed them shaftesbury however obtained the end for which he had undertaken this bold measure he showed to all his followers the desperate resolution which he had embraced never to admit of any accommodation or composition with the duke By such daring conduct he gave them assurance that he was fully determined not to desert their cause, and he engaged them to a like devoted perseverance in all the measures which he should suggest to them. As the kingdom was regularly and openly divided into two zealous parties, it was not difficult for the king to know that the majority of the new house of commons was engaged in interest opposite to the court but that he might leave no expedient untried which could compose the unhappy differences among his subjects he resolved at last after a long interval to assemble the parliament in his speech he told them that the several prorogations which he had made had been very advantageous to his neighbors and very useful to himself that he had employed that interval in perfecting with the crown of spain an alliance which had often been desired by former parliaments, and which, he doubted not, would be extremely agreeable to them. That, in order to give weight to this measure, and render it beneficial to Christendom, it was necessary to avoid all domestic dissensions, and to unite themselves firmly in the same views and purposes, that he was determined that nothing on his part should be wanting to such a salutary end and provided the succession were preserved in its due and legal course, he would concur in any expedient for the security of the Protestant religion, that the further examination of the popish plot, and the punishment of the criminals, were requisite for the safety both of king and kingdom, and, after recommending to them the necessity of providing, by some supplies, for the safety of tangiers, he proceeded in these words, but that which i value above all the treasure in the world and which i am sure will give us greater strength and reputation both at home and abroad than any treasure can do is a perfect union among ourselves nothing but this can restore the kingdom to that strength and vigor which it seems to have lost and raise us again to that consideration which england hath usually possessed all europe have their eyes upon this assembly and think their own happiness and misery as well as ours will depend upon it if we should be so unhappy as to fall into misunderstandings among ourselves to that degree as would render our friendship unsafe to trust to will not be wondered at if our neighbors should begin to take new resolutions and perhaps such as may be fatal to us LET US THEREFORE TAKE CARE THAT WE DO NOT GRATIFY OUR ENEMIES AND DISCOURAGE OUR FRIENDS BY ANY UNSEASONABLE DISPUTES. IF ANY SUCH DO HAPPEN, THE WORLD WILL SEE THAT IT IS NO FAULT OF MINE, FOR I HAVE DONE ALL THAT WAS POSSIBLE FOR ME TO DO, TO KEEP YOU IN PEACE WHILE I LIVE, AND TO LEAVE YOU SO WHEN I DIE. But from so great prudence and so good affection as yours, I can fear nothing of this kind, but do rely upon you all, that you will do your best endeavors to bring this Parliament to a good and happy conclusion. End of Section 27 Chapter 68 Part 1 Recording by Jim Dennison J-I-M-D-E-N-I-S-O-N Voice.com